welcome to the third episode of One Christian Thinks, a podcast that examines current events, politics, worldview, and ideologies from an explicitly Christian perspective. I am your host, Mike Hutton. If this is your first time listening, I ask that you press pause and listen to the first episode, where I introduce the show, my motivations, and give some guiding principles. In this episode, we begin a series in which we evaluate the organization Black Lives Matter, their claims of racism and police brutality, and the policies they propose to fix what they see as systemic problems. Hot on the heels of a global pandemic came an act of police brutality that sparked ongoing protests and riots across the United States, Canada, and several other countries. George Floyd was killed on May 25th, 2020, and still two months later, activists continue to draw attention to the issue of police brutality and systemic racism, particularly against the black community. In all of this, the organization Black Lives Matter has been instrumental in organizing the majority of the protests, raising media awareness, and influencing politicians. One example of their influence is with Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City who helped paint a Black Lives Matter mural on one of the streets of his city and is charging anyone who defaces it with criminal mischief. Now, I want to say ahead of time, every time I mention Black Lives Matter in this episode, I'm very specifically referring to the organization. I also want to point out at this time that yes, all black lives do matter. Black Lives Matter has garnered massive online and offline support. Peoples or groups that previously were not likely to have supported Black Lives Matter now started raising their voices. Members of various church clergies were photographed kneeling before the Black Lives Matter flag. Government buildings hung Black Lives Matter signs in their windows, and private businesses voiced their support for the activist organization. Seeing all of this happen, many Christians asked, What is our role? How can we be part of the solution to improve race relations? Obviously, we must work against injustices, but what do we do? Do we protest? Do we change our social media picture to a a black square for Blackout Tuesday? Do we support Black Lives Matter? Or should we be looking in a different direction for racial reconciliation? There's a lot involved in trying to answer these questions especially since tensions are so high. Even inside churches, tensions are high. But still, the question must be answered. As Christians, what should our position be, and what can we do to ease racial tensions? In order to do justice to this discussion, I'm going to cover this topic over multiple episodes. In this first episode, I'll start by looking at the ideological foundation of Black Lives Matter. Now, I don't like simplifying complex issues, but in my research, the foundation seems to be summed up in two concepts, identity politics and intersectionality. Let's look at these one at a time. So first, identity politics. The actual meaning of identity politics is a little difficult to pin down because different people have different ideas. So I'm just going to start with a generic online dictionary where identity politics is defined as 
a tendency for people of a particular religion, race, social background, etc., to form exclusive political alliances moving away from traditional broad-based party politics. In a little less formal language, what this means is that people arrange themselves in groups based on identity and seek to create public policy to primarily benefit that specific group. I want to add to that definition that the identity groups not only seek to change public policy, they also try to implement change using other methods such as public shaming, fear of losing a job, and other social pressures. These identity groups form based on any perceived identity, whether that's gender, sexual orientation, race, religion, or any number of other identities. Identity politics are all around us. Often, the policy they pursue is said to benefit all of society. So, for example, the modern-day feminist movement is an identity politics movement. It is characterized by a group of people united on one identity, uh, the female sex, that seeks to create public change to benefit that group. For example, feminists today will advocate for equal pay between men and women, higher numbers of women in powerful positions, and free daycare, so mothers can work outside the home more easily. I might dig into these ideas in a later episode, but for now, I just wanted to use feminism as an example of identity politics. Identity politics is not at all a new concept. While the specific phrase originated sometime in the 1970s, the idea of creating policy based on identity is nothing new. In fact, I could possibly argue that the idea of broad-based public policy, policy that seeks to impact everyone in the same way, is a far more recent concept than identity politics. A historical example of identity politics is all the way back in the 6th century, in the year 529 AD. Around that time, the Byzantine Emperor, Justinian the Great, published a new set of laws directly aimed at restricting Jewish worship and civil rights, while also giving citizenship only to Christians. This was public policy, based entirely on religious and ethnic identity. It was identity politics. This is definitely not the only example, just the one that I picked, to show that this is not a new concept. Moving on to intersectionality. Intersectionality is somewhat of a continuation of identity politics. Rather than just focusing on one identity, let's say race, Intersectionality brings more identities into the picture, like gender and socioeconomic status. These identities, working together, combine to form a unique set of discriminations or privileges for each individual or group that has that identity. So one example of intersectionality might be a white, lower class female. That person is defined by their identities of skin color, white, socioeconomic status, lower class, and sex, female. An individual living at the intersection of these three identifiers might be considered privileged because of her white skin, while also being subject to discrimination because of being lower class and female. These challenges are unique to that individual, and therefore, 
It said that policies should be crafted to put her in a position equal to that of someone who does not face as much discrimination. Black Lives Matter is very openly an organization rooted in identity politics and intersectionality. One sentence from their website reads, We are unapologetically black in our positioning, which shows the identity black. And then another sentence, We are committed to struggling together and to imagining and creating a world free of anti-blackness, where every black person has the social, economic, and political power to thrive, which shows the politics side. They openly acknowledge that they are seeking to create social and political change to support specifically black individuals. Statements on their website also show the intersectionality in their positions. An example, we build a space that affirms black women, or we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women. So you see them specifically seeking to help and support the people who live at the intersection of the identities black and woman, and even more so those who live at the intersection of black and transgender and woman. According to Black Lives Matter's statement, these individuals continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence, which is presumably why they are separated out for specific help. So what might be the benefits of public policy based on identity and intersectionality? The benefit most commonly referenced is that identity politics and intersectionality give marginalized populations a voice, when otherwise they would be drowned out. For example, a lobby group that seeks to make every business wheelchair accessible would be giving a voice to disabled people, so they have the same access to businesses and services as those who are not disabled. The identity at play there is disabled, and the public policy created would be mandatory wheelchair ramps and elevators. Without identity politics, Perhaps these people would not have a voice and then would be restricted in the places they would be able to access. Another example would be one referenced earlier from Black Lives Matter, the example of black trans women. These people are said to be disproportionately discriminated against, so they also need a disproportionate amount of help, which is why BLM stands up for them and deliberately ensures that these people have a voice in politics and society. This all sounds like pretty good stuff, right? It sounds like the Black Lives Matter organizers have taken Isaiah 1 verse 17 to heart, where it says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Or perhaps Proverbs 31 verse 8 to 9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Well, let's look at it from another angle. There's a not so good side to identity politics and intersectionality. Let's take a hypothetical group of people and a limited amount of government resources or money. Money is always limited. That group of people starts operating on the principles of identity politics and intersectionality to determine how to divide the money. So what happens? First, you get two groups. 
based on sex, male and female. Then four, when race is taken into consideration. Black males, black females, white males, white females. Then it triples to 12 groups once you factor in socioeconomic status, lower class, middle class, and upper class. If you consider able-bodied people versus disabled people, you have 24 groups, and so on and so on. In this way, you can divide society down all the way to the individual level, all fighting for their share of the money. So with this simple thought experiment, we can readily see that identity politics and intersectionality might not always be such a good thing. But the proponents of identity politics come back at this and argue that identity politics do not divide. They merely highlight divisions that already exist in society. But with identity politics, it seems as though the logical conclusion is that identity groups in society will simply end up competing with each other in a power struggle. At times, the first group will gain power over the second, and at other times, the second group will rise up and put itself in power over the first. So my question is, is this the best solution, or is there a better way? Before answering this question, I just want to highlight a couple historical examples of this happening. Now, before I get into these examples, I want to make it abundantly clear. I am not drawing a comparison between any of these groups and Black Lives Matter. I am simply discussing identity politics. First, let's look at the South African apartheid, or literally, apartness, or segregation. With social causes going back to the 1800s, which included denying black people the right to vote in 1905, the apartheid officially started with the election in 1948. Immediately prior to 1948, there was a large influx of black migrant workers into the South African industrialized centers because of the economic development around World War II. This influx of black workers threatened the jobs of the minority white workers. So one of the key platforms of the National Party, which won the election, was to ensure white workers would maintain their employment opportunities. They would do this simply by barring black workers from certain jobs. This policy led to widespread segregation across basically every aspect of life. This, without a doubt, is an example of identity politics. Of course, it was identity politics that helped the white people, who held the power at the time since black people couldn't vote, but it was identity politics nonetheless. The apartheid was finally overturned in South Africa in 1994, after over 40 years of discrimination, unrest, and complete division of races. The goal, with the ending of apartheid, was an undivided South Africa. But what happened? Over the past few years, less than a quarter century after apartheid was overturned, governments are currently examining policy that would take land away from white farmers without compensation and give it to the black workers. Of course, they say, this will be to fix historical injustices, improve the economy, and help out the struggling black community. But this is also another example of identity politics which seems to just pit identity groups against each other in a never-ending power struggle. Interestingly, neighboring Zimbabwe actually went through with land expropriation in the early 2000s, 
the white landowners were evicted, and their land was given to the black natives. Shortly after that, Zimbabwe, originally one of the richest African countries, became one of its poorest as agricultural production collapsed. And just recently, Zimbabwe decided to give land back to the white farmers from whom it was taken less than 20 years ago. But now, the white farmers are complaining that the payout and compensation is nowhere near enough, nowhere near what the actual land value was. So is this where identity politics brings us? A continual struggle between identity groups? A struggle for power and economic improvement? But the dangers of identity politics don't stop there. They played a significant role in one of the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. A nation of people, oppressed by international sanctions, economically destitute, with little hope for future stability and prosperity, rallied behind a great leader to throw off the shackles of their oppressors. Along the way, they united behind a common identity and operated on the basis of that identity. This story is of Germany and World War II. So perhaps, just maybe, identity politics is a road that we might not want to go down. But then what about the groups of people that are genuinely disadvantaged? The people that identity politics seeks to lift up? Without identity politics, won't they get lost in the sea of louder voices? Let's consider what the Bible says about identity. What do we find there? I want to make three points about biblical identity. First, every person that has ever lived has been made in the image of God. Second, Every individual has a particular relationship with God. And third, out of that relationship, we learn our responsibilities to other people and society in general. So first, every person, regardless of how they identify in this life, has been made in God's image. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This continued to apply after the fall into sin as well. James 3 verse 9 mentions people as being made in the image of God. The fall into sin served to disfigure or distort God's image in man, but it did not remove it. This, and only this, is the proper starting point of identity. Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology, summarizes the practical aspect of this identity. Quote, Every single human being... No matter how much the image of God is marred by sin, or illness, or weakness, or age, or any other disability, still has the status of being in God's image, and therefore must be treated with the dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearer. This has profound implications for our conduct toward others. It means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights." Unquote. The second aspect of Christian identity that I want to point out is that every person has a specific, individual, covenantal relationship with God, or at least, they are called to. Some people may choose to ignore that calling and turn their back on God, but that doesn't mean this calling doesn't apply to them. And John 1 verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Yes, as Christians, we are part of God's covenantal people, but no group membership or identity, including covenantal membership, provides any saving grace for us 
No, we must, as individuals, have a personal faith, a personal belief in Christ's sacrifice, a personal relationship with God. The third aspect of our biblical identity is that we must realize, given our identity as God's image bearers and having a specific relationship with him, it is at this point that we can understand our responsibilities in our other relationships, whether that's to the people closest to us, wives, husbands, father, mother, siblings, or to fellow believers as God's covenant people, or to society at large. The Bible gives clear directives for how we are to act in our relationships and the responsibilities we have. It is in this context that the previous reference texts from Isaiah 1 and Proverbs 31 can be properly understood. From Isaiah, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. And from Proverbs, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now, I will be the first to acknowledge that I fail in my Christian identity and responsibilities over and over. But this is the biblical model. And I hope that you can see the difference between biblical identity and identity politics. Whereas identity politics operates at the group level and seeks divisions in groups to try benefit or help certain people, biblical identity operates first at the individual level. And then only from our individual identities do we understand our responsibilities to other people, not what we can get from them, but what we must do for them. Properly practiced, biblical identity cares for the downtrodden, the oppressed, the poor, anyone who needs help. But that care is often lacking. There are many instances, both now and historically, of people falling through the cracks in society, even so-called Christian societies. Sin is real, and people do get left behind. But the proper response to this is not to turn away from the biblical model, as Black Lives Matter does, but to turn back towards it. This is also the distinction between modern identity politics and the civil rights movements of the mid-20th century, particularly those in the United States. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, which had as its foundation the idea that all men are created equal, as enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. It reflected the biblical idea of identity and called Americans to live up to that model. Just a couple lines from the end of the speech, quote, And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, unquote. It is within the framework of biblical identity that we can actually help people. Biblical identity shows us that we all start as equals, made in the image of God. Identity politics forgets or maybe ignores this. Biblical identity shows us that we have a responsibility to others because they are made in God's image just like we are. Identity politics sees others as people to compete against. Biblical identity unites, Identity politics divides. 
So you might ask, are you willing to just get rid of Black Lives Matter just because you don't agree with their founding principles? Sounds racist to me. I never said we had to get rid of Black Lives Matter. I just don't think people should be tricked into accepting their identity politics. And I don't think that they should have the political or social influence that they do. And no, that's not racist at all. I don't believe for a second that the identity politics pushed by BLM will raise up the disadvantaged, benefit black people, and help unify society. I think it will actually do more harm than good, including for the people it claims to help. I believe that the proper way to lift people up and to repair race relations is to return to a biblical view of identity. Yes, there have been atrocities committed because of identity, but trying to fix them using identity politics is a losing proposition. Regaining a biblical identity is the proper way forward. But wait, you might say, there's really no other organization standing up for black rights with the same political and social power as Black Lives Matter. Isn't this the best there is currently? So rather than getting rid of them, we should work alongside them? Okay, I'll play along. Let's just try to ignore the fact that identity politics and biblical identity are, for all intents and purposes, opposite each other. Let's dig a little deeper. In the next episode in this series, we'll continue the discussion by evaluating what Black Lives Matter is actually claiming. We'll discuss racism, including systemic racism, and the claims of police brutality. Absolutely, without a doubt, there are incidents of racism and police brutality which should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But is this racism and brutality systemic? What does that even mean, and what are the implications of it? Join me in a couple weeks as we continue to dig into this hot-button topic. But wait, there's more. Next week, in only one week from now, I hope to be able to release the first From the Mailbox episode. I've received quite a bit of feedback already, including some questions and criticisms. And I want to go through some of that to hopefully clarify a few things that you might have wondered about in my previous episodes. If you appreciated this discussion and are interested in more, I ask that you share and subscribe. Share, of course, to help start the conversation. And subscribe simply because I have a day job. I can't guarantee when my episodes will come out. So subscribe, sign up for notifications, whatever you have to do. Also, feel free to email me whatever questions or feedback you may have. My email is oct at allmail.net. That's OCT, which stands for One Christian Thinks, at allmail.net. Until next time, keep thinking.